This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. The Spice Girls were good customers. They used to rock up in a little van and jump out and pour into the shop and buy all sorts of things. They particularly liked a pastel-coloured um, holdalls that I made in, in a new buck. And we used to sell a lot of them to them. From Living Etc magazine, this is Home Truths, a show about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pip McCormack, and on the show today, how Bill Amberg went from travelling his trade in handmade leather goods around Australia to becoming the chosen leather craftsman of everyone from the Spice Girls to the Queen. Bill Amberg's luxury leather goods His bags, his purses, his baby slings and his floors are characterised by their buttery softness, by their caramel tones and bright colours and by how lovely they are to the touch. But although his goods tend to belong in a fairly rarefied world, Bill himself is welcoming, passionate and a playful inventor, constantly looking for new ways to improve on the material that has been the enduring love affair of his career. He came of age in London at the same time as Tom Dixon, when there was a punky attitude and anything goes approach to design. And it's fascinating to see how that feeling has stayed with him throughout his career. Before this episode, Bill gave me some milestones that he felt helped him get to where he is today. And in telling me the stories behind them, he's going to share the secrets of his success. Though, as he'll tell you, perhaps this was always going to be the path he took. Well, I grew up near Northampton and my parents, my dad ran a, an engineering business in Northampton in um, uh, manufacturing lifts and escalators um, called Express Lift Company in Northampton. And my mother was an architect and she worked for Albo Alto. She's half Finnish. My mum was half Finnish and my dad was half Danish. And they were both very, obviously very interested in architecture and my mum being an architect and having worked for Albo Alto was you know, of that Scandinavian aesthetic, I would say. Um, and as a child at school, I was quite restless and I wasn't particularly academic. Um, and I think that they were very keen for me to um, do as much as I could. Um, and they really encouraged me to make things. Um, I grew up with my grandfather, lived at home as well. Um, and um, he... Uh, he had a workshop, and my dad had a workshop, and they were forever making something, both of them. And my mum would design it, and my dad would make it. So I kind of grew up in that whole environment of designing and making. I mean, you never stood a chance of becoming an accountant with that. <laughs> no, I didn't. Well, apart from anything else, I did have to take my maths O level five times just to get a, just to get a pass. So I definitely wasn't going to be an accountant. <laughs> And um, so were your mother's architectural sensibilities rubbing off on you in the same way that clearly your dad's and your grandfather's sort of... Yes, I think so. I mean, she was really encouraging me to draw um, and to and to make. And, and it was very, um, you know, they were just really encouraging for me to do anything. So I would make wooden, you know, I would work with wood and metal and anything that was available. Um, and availability was 
there was lots of um, leather. It was called cabbage in those days. It was what outworkers, the, the scrap left over from outworkers' work in Northampton. And because they, it was then a very buoyant shoe industry in Northampton, um, they, um, they used to sell their leather, leather waste on the, um, on, the, uh, on the market. And mum used to buy great sacks of it and bring it back and give it to me to, to mess with. And I used to make, you know, hideous, hideous bags, <laughs> purses and all sorts of things. My poor sister and my mum, you know, were sort of forced to walk around with these dreadful things stitched together with string. I mean, you, you say dreadful, but but talk me through what an early Billenberg design actually looked like. Oh, I, you know, I do know. Sort of, ba- you know, bags and wallets and purses and things. Just just things to, um, you know, that were entertaining. And then, and then I started to explore more proper working with vegetable tan leathers and then doing, um, decorating the surface of the material, doing carving. Um, and then I started to buy patterns or make patterns and do more formal bags. So by the time I left school, I was sort of reasonably competent in a sort of hokey way of making stuff in in leather. I mean, because obviously you had access to quite a few different materials. You mentioned wood and and, and leather. But what was it about leather specifically that appealed to you? Well, that's a great question. It's a really beautiful material. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those materials that everybody takes for granted. I mean, most people... um, you know, they have some leather item on or around them all day and every day, you know, be it a purse or a wallet or a belt or a watch strap or a, you know, a a case to put their laptops or phone cases in, you know, I mean, it's a very, it's a a material that's absolutely everywhere. And it's really beautiful. It's a very, it's a lovely material to work. It's very sympathetic. Um, It, it work. It fits in the hand really well. It's very tactile. Um, it really helps you. It doesn't fight you when you're trying to do things with it. It, it's, it manipulates really beautifully. Um, and I also love the way it wears. You know, as you work it, it improves. You know, it, it softens and works as you manipulate it. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. Uh, you know, when leather goes really sort of soft and supple, it's it's so. Oh, it's so inviting that sort of when it when it's good quality leather, that sort of the caramel tones to it. Um, I mean, it, it clearly appealed to you so much that you you know you decided to travel to the other side of the world to to study more about leather. What happened over in Australia? Well, I I started in New Zealand actually, and I I did and I kind of worked my way around New Zealand and then on to Australia. And as I, it was a very convenient um, skill to have because you could always get work in any town, virtually. Um, you could literally, you, you know, when I used to arrive hitchhiking into a town in New Zealand, I would, or in New Ze- or in Australia, I would, you know, the first thing I'd do is get the old yellow pages out and find a saddler or a cobbler or a shoe repair shop or, you know, of course, in those days, sandal makers or belt makers or whatever, and just go and offer up my services. And, so consequently, I've worked for lots of different people doing lots of different leathery type jobs, just helping out. And, and it was a very good foundation because you you sort of just pick up so many different techniques and different people's approach to it. And so I started to make um, leather sculpture and leather jewellery. What was it like? Tell us, tell us about the leather well, jewellery. You must put it into context. Bear in mind, this is sort of, I was very much came out of punk rock and 
then the new romantics came along in the, in the 80s. So it was a little bit of a take on both of that. So I was making sort of brightly coloured neck pieces um, and then went on to make full body um, moulded sort of breastplates, I suppose you would say. But when I came back to England uh, at the very end of 1983, I realised obviously that there was no way that you could make a living out of leather jewellery because, you know, it wasn't something that anybody actually wanted. What was the perception of leather like in the UK? Because obviously what we think of you now is, you know, you're, it's very crafted and what you do is very beautiful. But I wonder if there was anybody in the UK doing anything like that at the time or whether leather was seen as a, a material for, you know, biker jackets and, and, and shoes. Yeah, it was basically then. I mean, then it was, there was very few, um, there was certainly nobody else doing what I was doing. But I I, I was quite bold. And um, I I think even though I was still very young at that stage, I was only 21, I, I was quite bold. And I, I was, and I just literally, somebody told me about this shop in Floral Street that was really cool, and I should go and see them. And it was called Paul Smith. So I just rocked up that one day, one day and said, oh, hello, I'd like to meet Mr. Smith, please. Um, I've got some bags to show him. And bless him, he said, um, yeah, come in, <laughs> show me. And he, he, Paul Smith was just there. In, in... Well, he wasn't. He, I, I made an appointment with him and, and, I, and I went and see him and I took my bags and um, he, he bought them there and then. And then I did the same at Liberty. I did the same with Joseph. And then for many years, all through the 80s, I was designing and making bags for for Liberties and Paul Smith and Joseph. I mean, that presumably, you know, really must have helped put you on the map, you know, to be in such sort of high regarded places, to have your products in them, you know, must have really opened, you know, the eyes of the the fashion world and, um, you know, people who were interested in design at that time. But how were you meeting those orders? Because was it just you in a, in a workshop? Yeah. or did? Yeah, it was just me in a workshop, yeah. I, you know, literally I would um, sort of dress up in the day to go and have these appointments and then I would go back to my one of many little workshop studios that I had and, and just busy myself all night making that. Sounds quite romantic. Well, yeah. And then, and then my sister came, then my sister helped me for, for, for a long while and I got I used to get, my brother was a medical student and he used to come and help me in the evenings as well. And my mum and dad helped me. I used to take bits and pieces down to them for them to be my outworkers so yeah it just kind of slowly grew you know were you starting to get noticed in in the fashion pages yeah yeah no I've got some early press um of me you know wrapped up in leather doing stuff um but I also then I you know that was but I was by that stage I was also hanging out with architects you know and 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 a sort of design crowd well, yes, because I wanted to ask about that, because I quite like the image I have of you of hanging out with this sort of, you know, in the bunch of architects, you know, people like Nigel Coates, you, um, you know, tell me about that group, because I imagine it to all be kind of strong espressos and even stronger views on ideology. Is that fair? Um, yes, it was really interesting. It was a really interesting time, actually. There was, um, you know, Ron Arad was was doing interesting stuff. Tom Dixon was around doing interesting stuff. Andre Dubroy was around. I don't know if you remember him. Yeah. Um, and I and I did a lot of leather work for Andre as well. So I was doing tabletops and desktops for Andre. I did the original S chair with Tom. In fact, he's asked me to do, it's the 30th anniversary of the S chair now, and he's asked me to, to do a reworking of it which is great. So I'm looking That's amazing because Tom was on this podcast already and we talked about the S-chair and he was sort of really painted a picture of that time of his very rebellious rock and roll studio that just kind of did whatever, you know, made, I think he made the prototype out using an old walk as the base. And it just seemed to be this kind of very 
punky spirit of just anything goes and we'll just kind of collaborate and do it. Is that how you remember that time? Oh, completely. I mean, I, I, it's very hard for people to contemplate that. And, and sometimes when I talk to students and stuff now, but London was really cheap then. I mean, it seems like a mad idea, but London was very cheap and there was spaces to work everywhere. I mean, you could find a warehouse or a somewhere for nothing. You know, none of the, the sort of regeneration or the gentrification of London had happened. So the whole of like South London and all around the river in East London um, was cheap as chips. You could get spaces anywhere. So if you if you wanted to make anything, that was easy. And I rented a flat in Notting Hill Gate. I think I paid £25 a month. Do you miss that time? Because when I think Tom Dixon, he'd never admit it, obviously, Tom being Tom. But when he talked about it on the podcast, I got a real sense of wistfulness for that period where I think he probably felt quite free. Do you miss that sort of feeling of, you know, art, artistry and, you know, creativity? That's another, it's a very interesting question. I did, I've actually resolved it now, but I did have a moment when I just wasn't enjoying my, my work anymore. And it was largely because I wasn't making anything anymore. I had just become a businessman and, um, and I didn't, and I just found it frustrating. But now I, I'm actually, in a, you know, the last few 10 years, I suppose, but particularly actually in the last year or so, I've had a really interesting creative time. I've got a very nice, you know, studio of my own at home, which I find wonderful to have. And it's a great privilege to have it. Well, I think you've always been pretty revolutionary when it comes to leather. I mean, in 1986, when you did your first leather floor, presumably that it was... I mean, was it the first leather floor anyone had ever done or was this something that people were already doing? It, it, we certainly were the first people since probably the 60s to have done it. Um, I know that there was a floor put down in Bristol in the 60s um, that's still there, I believe. And we actually restored um, down outside Brighton that, I, that I, my guess is went down in the 30s or 40s, something like that. So they, they were around. And of course, the other thing that really prompted me as well was um, I did a tiled floor in Thurlow Square in London um, for an architect, but I also did a floor for um, Solange Azaguri, the jeweller. She and I were both obsessed with um, Joseph Boys, and he had just had a very important show in in London um, at the time. And there were photographs of Joseph Boys in his studio in Dusseldorf with a leather hand stitched floor and or laced floor, I should say. And um, Solange and I both loved that image of him. And I did a I did a big leather floor for her using the same technique so it was kind of around but certainly there was nobody else doing it that's for sure and because i've seen some images of some of your leather floors and they're they're sort of in a parquet style is that what you always do well now i do three types of floors i do a, i do a leather carpet literally a leather carpet where we stitch stitch everything together and it goes in underneath the skirting board um, on an underlay we do a leather rug which is like a free floating um leather rug that has a, um, a, a very thin but very strong underlay to it that it's attached to and that can either sit on top of a wooden floor or a stone floor or be dropped in flush with it um, and then we also do a tiled floor um, and the tiles we do in every type of style and every size that you can imagine from you know one meter square tiles to parquet tiles I mean uh, the one I think you're probably des- describing is the one that's in Selfridge's men's shoe department 
That's right, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a really beautiful floor, and, and that's been down for over 10 years. It gets enormous traffic, and now they've just asked us just to recondition it. Does it take a certain type of leather or a certain treatment of leather to make it worthy of being on a floor and, and able to withstand all that traffic? Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting. It became very popular. You know, we, we didn't sort of capitalise on it, but, you know, having done the first leather floor, it then started to become more evident and people started to consider it as a as a flooring option um, in beautiful homes and in public spaces and then lots of flooring companies piled in and started offering leather floors and it was a shame in a well it's it's obvious but it was a shame in a way because they used incorrect material and they laid it incorrectly using incorrect techniques and you end up with damaged and poor quality floors going down and of course, then everybody looks at leather floors and goes, oh, they don't really work. Well, that's not true. You just have to use the correct material and you have to use the correct um, technique to lay them. Do you, this is a really naive question now, do you have a sort of specific type of, I don't know, a type of cow that you like to get your leather from or a country or a herd or, I mean, how, you know, how does that work? Leather as a raw material is, is a strange one. It's a, it's a byproduct. Um, of the food industry. So there are no, um, certainly no bovine animals, but the, the bulk of the leather that anybody uses or anybody sees is is a waste material left over from the food industry. And as such, it's in, an incredibly sustainable material. I mean, so long as people keep eating meat, there will be leather. So that's a kind of I think that's an interesting point. Also, you can see the the, the types of, there's a lot of different types of leather, obviously, and a lot of different techniques for turning um, a leather skin, a skin into leather, the actual process of it. Um, I am very fond of vegetable tanned leathers, um, which just literally uses tree bark um, and the tannins in tree bark go between the fibres of the skin and create leather. And you get a wonderful, natural, beautiful material. I don't like surface pigmentation, um, so which is what most leather is not vegetable tanned, it's chrome tanned. And most leather has a painted pigmented surface on it, which again, I don't like. I like a completely natural um, material that's dyed, similar to fabric is dyed. It's just sort of immersed in the dye. Um, and you end up with a really subtle, notable difference between each skin, the way each individual skin absorbs the dye slightly differently. Which must make it hard when you're doing a big project, like a big floor and need lots of skins. Or... Yeah, you, so long as the client gets it, it actually is much, much more beautiful. I mean, the best example of it is a um, we worked with um, David Chipperfield on designing and developing and then installing the seating in the Royal Academy Lecture Theatre. But when you stand at the front, you know, on the podium and you look at the seat backs, you can see what I mean about this dyeing technique, which is called aniline dyeing, because the tonal variation of each of those elements is just slightly different. And that's different enough in a vast space like that for it to look really, really elegant. It doesn't simply look like a great slab of caramel leather. You get this tonality and you get this nuance of colour 
and you get this flow and, and movement to the whole thing. And it looks absolutely beautiful, I think. And that, that's because they were brave enough as clients to, they, were, they listened to what we were saying about the choice of material, and then they were brave enough to go with it. I just want to interrupt this conversation to tell you a little bit about the iconic momentum ranges from Harlequin. From organic-inspired wallpapers to architectural geometric fabrics, this contemporary range has looks to suit any home, allowing you to embrace colour and be bold with design. I'm particularly into the subtle metallic gleam of the element texture wallpaper, which is as sophisticated as it is beautiful. To keep up to date with all the latest inspiration from Harlequin, follow at HarlequinFW on Instagram. Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. So... Jumping back to the 90s and you uh, working with people like Charles Rutherford for that floor in Zerlo Square and presumably this, you know, exposed you to this whole world of larger projects and big names and doing things quite grandly. What did this do for you as a business or a brand? Because presumably at this point you can't still be, you know, working all, all the hours and, and getting your, your brother and your, your sister to kind of help you out. No, I mean, I was very fortunate in that I managed to... Um... It, it grew. My business grew well. I, I exported a lot of bags. Um, it was still primarily a bag business. And I had I opened my first store in Notting Hill Gate. That was a wonderful experience. And, you know, the business grew well. But in, in parallel to the bag business, I, I started to do more and more architectural work as well. Um, and they kind of grew. It grew in parallel. But the, the front face of the business, if you like, was was um was bags and luggage and briefcases were, were any of your customers kind of crossing over were people kind of stopping in buying a bag and hearing about the floors and coming back for them yeah, a little bit yeah a little bit definitely and it was curious I, I mean I kind of I guess about 10 or 15 years ago probably 10 years ago now um you know if you ask people what do they know about Bill Amberg you've got a real mixed response some people went oh yeah he's a bag designer or and yet, beginning about 10 years ago, people said, oh, yeah, he does, um, you know, leather floors and leather walls and furniture. So it started to shift. The balance started to shift. The first time I believe that you went truly into the sort of mainstream public consciousness was, or perhaps it was just for me when you came into my consciousness, was in my first job on a fashion magazine. And your baby carriers were yeah. being, you know, they were worn by people like Kate Winslet, Victoria Beckham, even Liam Gallagher, I saw wearing one at the time. And I remember we have one coming to and I tried it on even though I didn't have a baby and never had a baby but it was so comfortable and nice to wear it was a lovely piece did that how did that sort of come about and how did you get them into the hands of celebrities or, or what what was going on um I I mean my career has been led by good luck rather than good management firstly <laughs> um and that papoose is a, a good example of it I mean I just when I had my first um uh, daughter um, I was looking at papooses and I didn't find one that I liked I couldn't find one that was comfortable for the wearer you know for the adult um, I made one for myself for my daughter and um, you know without thinking particularly commercially and then somebody said oh you should you should make more of those they're really good so I literally made one put it in the shop and that sold and you know, so on, so on, so on, so forth. And by the, obviously by then we had, you know, um, the Spice Girls were good customers um, then. And, you know, people came in and, and they just became more popular. And I think as soon as David Beckham and, and, uh, 
picture of Rebecca were photographed in them, it, it just went crazy. People what had the Spice Girls been buying? They used to rock up in a little van and jump out and pour into the shop and buy all sorts of things. They particularly liked a pastel-coloured holdalls that I made in, in a new buck. And we used to sell a lot of them to them. I can, I can actually picture them wearing them, I think. <laughs> Back in the day, you know? Yeah. Was there a tipping point around this time or, or any point where you started to feel like you were making a real success of things? Or, I mean, if you, have you ever really felt like that? Have you ever sort of acknowledged your own success? I just, I, I mean, I'm, I, if I was to, if to look back on it, um, I, you know, I never managed my business particularly well or carefully. I never kind of controlled it properly. I never capitalised on, on pieces of, on opportunities when they came along. Um, I was always far too busy thinking up the next thing. And, I'm, and I just think that's me. I think it's interesting that you say you, you feel like you might have missed opportunities because, you know, I, I, I look at your career and it, it just seems full of so many amazing things, you know, from working with the Spice Girls to designing a leather curtain for the Queen. I mean, there's a lot that you've done in that time that's, that's quite fantastic. Tell, me, tell us about the, um, the, the Westminster project for the, for yeah, the Queen. That's a, lovely, that's a lovely project. That was um, um, working with exhibition architects, MoMA, who are wonderful. They came to us with a big problem that they had at Westminster Abbey where um, they were converting the roof space into a gallery. But they needed to have very careful control of the light the ultraviolet light because they had so many delicate, ancient, beautiful objects in there and that they couldn't afford to fade or degrade with UV. And they needed, therefore, some kind of effectively partitioned walls, what it boils down to, really. But they, they couldn't drill into the fabric. They couldn't build into the fabric of the building. So they needed these walls to be temporary. And, of course, a, a leather curtain is a perfect example of that. But we were set with a really interesting challenge that they had to be non-mechanical, so they couldn't be motor-operated. They had to be operated by one person, so they didn't want a team of people to draw these hugely heavy curtains. And that was a bit of a, it was a very interesting design exercise about how to um, get these huge curtains to draw beautifully and balance perfectly. And so it's fun, it was interesting. And it looks, they look so simple, but technically they're, they're very complicated in, in the mechanism that we um, developed. Yeah, there's a lovely little video on your website, actually, of them opening and closing. Um, so I can tell how proud you are of them. I'm, I'm sure the Queen appreciated the mechanisms, too. No, it's lovely. I mean, they're lovely. They're double-sided leather curtains, um, and they're beautiful. It sounds like you're still really hands-on with the kind of the, the creative side of things. And I think that's really nice to hear after you mentioning earlier that you at one point felt like you were a businessman. And, and now clearly you're, you're, you're more involved in the things that interest you. What, what does your sort of daily life and your sort of involvement in the business look like these days? Well, I'm very, very lucky to have such an amazing team that I work with, both designers and craftsmen, but also estimating, finance, marketing, all of those things are taken care of by other people now. And they're done really, really well. We have a very good team of people. And that really frees me up to... Um, do what I'm good at, which is thinking up new ideas and thinking up new ways of developing. And I, I'm passionate about leather. I still am fascinated by it. I mean, we've just developed, with using new lighting technology, um, we have now just developed a leather-woven, hand-woven lampshade 
that's really beautiful and you will be the first to see it which will be in literally in the next few weeks i can't wait to see it um, it's really beautiful but again not possible before technology became available but now possible bill i have a question that i like to ask all of my guests and that is if you've ever had a master plan and if you have how close you are to it today um i wish i could say that i had a master plan <laughs> i look at some people i think why me they've done so it's so beautiful they've done so well and they must have a, they must have had a magnificent master plan I, I don't have a master plan no i'm ever curious and um and i will you know, I, I know that I will never retire. I have no intention of retiring. I will probably be messing around with leather until I'm a very, very old person. I think it's so heartening to hear of this love affair that you've had with leather that started when you were so young and that it's still enduring and that you think will never end. It's so charming and I think it's so rare for people to find something, a passion like that. Yeah, it's kind of, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm very, very lucky to be in the position that I am. You know, and I say to my children, you know, just find something that you love doing and then do that because it will save you so much grief. Yeah, that's good advice. Good advice to end on. But before we do end, I'm going to move on to the home truth section of this podcast, which is a quick fire round of questions for you. Um, Bill, what lockdown hobbies have you picked up, if any? I'm building, I bought a, an old 1930 chassis of a Ford and um, I'm building it into a to look like a 1920s Grand Prix car. Amazing that's cool. It will be fun I think I hope. It's nearly there. What was the last piece of homeware that you bought for yourself? There's a very beautiful ceramic artist called Richard Pomeroy and he is based in Bruton in Somerset. Bought one of his um, very lovely teacups. Um, do you own anything in leather that perhaps people might even be surprised even if even exists a leather version of? That was a very poorly uh, structured sentence, but I hope you understand what I meant. A little bit like your leather lampshade, and people would be surprised there was even a leather lampshade. Um, I was wondering if you had like a leather teapot or something like that. No, but I am making a leather mug, um, which is, I mean, again... You know, they used to exist for, for in the medieval period for hundreds of years, literally hundreds of years. Um, drinking vessels in pubs and inns and taverns and what have you were were made of leather, and um, because they were indestructible and they were cheap to make. And and I'm I'm now making a contemporary version of that. So I am making a leather cup that you will be able to drink out of for production or for your own humour. Um, it's an experiment that I'm. It's on a sort of work in progress at the moment. Um, again. You know, in, in a, when it's ready, I'll, I'll let other people see. Fantastic. Um, and lastly, where can people see more of your work or perhaps find you on the internet? The best place to go is billamberg.com and have a really good rummage around the website because it's quite a big website and there's lots of different avenues to go down. So it's well worth spending a bit of time having a look at. And um, we will be increasing the shop department there with the lights and with more additional furniture and stuff over the course of the next six months so fantastic great well good luck with that and thank you so much for your time that's great Pip it's really nice to meet you um albeit in a virtual world and I look forward to the day when we can you know shake hands and say hi properly and thank you for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths in the meantime don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram on at Living Etc UK and me on at Pitt McCormack. See you next time. This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin. 
the premier destination for inspirational design and colour.